Why should I be frightened of dying? You know reason for it. You gotta go sometimes. Hello, and welcome to the Sam Reed's Near Death Experiences podcast. Hope you all are doing well. Um, I'm doing something a little bit special today. I am, uh, well, you may have noticed over the past couple podcast episodes that I've gotten into uh, psychology lately, um, kind of related to doing this podcast and thinking about um, our higher, deeper selves, I suppose. Um, and particularly, I've been interested in the work of uh, Carl Jung, um, the famous uh, Swiss uh, psychologist um, from the first half of the 20th century, um, who's known for, he was one of the founders of the, uh, uh, analytical psychology and psychoanalysis and um, uh, responsible for the idea of the collective unconscious and of the importance of archetypes in psychology, as well as um, the idea of psychological types and um, a couple different things that have entered the popular culture. Um, so I've been reading Jung voraciously. I, I can't get enough of of his writing. I, I think he was a genius, and his writing is just so enjoyable. And, and so I stumbled upon um, the fact that Jung himself had had a near-death experience in uh, 1944. And so I wanted to share it with you all and um, I'll, I'll try and set it up a little bit here and then after I read his writing which is from um, his memoir which is called Memories, Dreams and Reflections I've, I've read bits and pieces of it and I would highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in Jung um, so I'll, I'll try and just kind of give a brief introduction and then after I read the story I'll try to kind of tie together some of these threads um, of what he talks about and how he views his experience and and why I'll, I'll try and explain what, why I find it so meaningful and, and fascinating I suppose um, for this podcast and, and for talking about near-death experiences as a phenomenon um, generally um, I think it's it's an interesting place to to come at near-death experiences from. Um, so I will do my best to uh, fumble through my thoughts on that topic after I read the story. Um, just as a, a brief introduction, I guess um, Dr. Jung had hurt, broken his foot, and he was in hospital, and then he had a heart attack. I think he was around 68 so he was he was getting pretty old and and from the heart attack he had essentially a near-death experience which was then followed by as he recovered he would go in and out of these visions or dreams so it's not just the near-death experience that we're going to talk about but also the his flickering in and out of, of these visions as he was recovering. Um, so that's pretty much the, the backstory, and um, and I'll talk a little bit more about some Jungian concepts and, and trying to understand um, what he was about and what uh, his contribution to, to the field of psychology. Um, this... Uh, I actually read this from uh, neardeath.com. Uh, it's another website um, that has some stories and uh, cool links to check out, so I'd recommend you go go check them out if you're interested in this. Um, and I think that's all I got. So without any further ado, I uh, will read uh, Dr. Carl Jung's Near-Death Experience. beginning of 1944, I broke my foot, and this misadventure was followed by a heart attack 
In a state of unconsciousness, I experienced deliriums and visions, which must have begun when I hung on the edge of death and was being given oxygen and camphor injections. The images were so tremendous that I myself concluded that I was close to death. My nurse afterward told me, it was as if you were surrounded by a bright glow. That was a phenomenon she had sometimes observed in the dying, she added. I had reached the outermost limit and do not know whether I was in a dream or an ecstasy. At any rate, extremely strange things began to happen to me. It seemed to me that I was high up in space. Far below I saw the globe of the earth, bathed in a gloriously blue light. I saw the deep blue sea and the continents. Far below my feet lay Ceylon, and in the distance ahead of me the subcontinent of India. My field of vision did not include the whole earth, but its global shape was plainly distinguishable, and its outline shone with a silvery gleam through that wonderful blue light. In many places the globe seemed colored or spotted dark green like oxidized silver. Far away to the left lay a broad expanse, the reddish-yellow desert of Arabia. It was as though the silver of the earth had there assumed a reddish-gold hue. Then came the Red Sea, and far, far back, as if in the upper left of a map, I could just make out a bit of the Mediterranean. My gaze was directed chiefly toward that. Everything else appeared indistinct. I could also see the snow-covered Himalayas, but in that direction it was foggy or cloudy. I did not look to the right at all. I knew that I was on the point of departing from the earth. Later I discovered how high in space one would have to be to have so extensive a view, approximately a thousand miles. The sight of earth from this height was the most glorious thing I had ever seen. After contemplating it for a while, I turned around. I had been standing with my back to the Indian Ocean, as it were, and my face to the north. Then it seemed to me that I made a turn to the south. Something new entered my field of vision. A short distance away, I saw in space a tremendous dark block of stone, like a meteorite. It was about the size of my house or even bigger. It was floating in space, and I myself was floating in space. I had seen similar stones on the coast of the Gulf of Bengal. They were blocks of tawny granite, and some of them had been hollowed out into temples. My stone was one such gigantic dark block. An entrance led into a small antechamber. To the right of the entrance, a black Hindu sat silently in lotus posture upon a stone bench. He wore a white gown, and I knew that he expected me. Two steps led up to this antechamber, and inside, on the left, was the gate to the temple. Innumerable tiny niches, each with a saucer-like concavity filled with coconut oil and small burning wicks, surrounded the door with a wreath of bright flames. I had once actually seen this when I visited the Temple of the Holy Tooth at Kandy in Ceylon. The gate had been framed by several rows of burning oil lamps of this sort. As I approached the steps leading up to the entrance into the rock, a strange thing happened. I had the feeling that everything was being slewed away. Everything I aimed at, or wished for, or thought, the whole phantasmagoria of earthly existence, fell away or was stripped from me, an extremely painful process. Nevertheless, something remained. It was as if I now carried along with me everything I had ever experienced or done, everything that had happened around me.
I might also say it was with me and I was it. I consisted of all that, so to speak. I consisted of my own history and I felt with great certainty, this is what I am. I am this bundle of what has been and what has been accomplished. This experience gave me a feeling of extreme poverty, but at the same time of great fullness. There was no longer anything I wanted or desired. I existed in an objective form. I was what I had been and lived. At first, the sense of annihilation predominated, of having been stripped or pillaged, but suddenly that became of no consequence. Everything seemed to be past. What remained was a fait accompli, without any reference back to what had been. There was no longer any regret that something had dropped away or been taken away. On the contrary, I had everything that I was, and that was everything. Something else engaged my attention. As I approached the temple, I had the certainty that I was about to enter an illuminated room and would meet there all those people to whom I belong in reality. There I would at last understand, this too was a certainty, what historical nexus I or my life fitted into. I would know what had been before me, why I had come into being, and where my life was flowing. My life, as I lived it, had often seemed to me like a story that has no beginning and end. I had the feeling that I was a historical fragment, an excerpt for which the preceding and succeeding text was missing. My life seemed to have been snipped out of a long chain of events, and many questions had remained unanswered. Why had it taken this course? Why had I brought these particular assumptions with me? What had I made of them? What will follow? I felt sure that I would receive an answer to all the questions as soon as I entered the rock temple. There I would meet the people who knew the answer to my question about what had been before and what would come after. While I was thinking over these matters, something happened that caught my attention. From below, from the direction of Europe, an image floated up. It was my doctor, or rather, his likeness, framed by a golden chain or a golden laurel wreath. I knew at once. Aha! This is my doctor, of course, the one who has been treating me. But now he is coming in his primal form as the Basilius of Kos. Footnote. Basilius was the king, i.e. Basilius of Kos, a small Greek island in the Aegean Sea. The island of Kos was famous in antiquity as the site of the temple of Asclepius and was the birthplace of Hippocrates. End of footnote. In life, he was an avatar of this Basilius, the temporal embodiment of the primal form, which has existed from the beginning. Now he is appearing in that primal form. Presumably I too was in my primal form, though this was something I did not observe, but simply took for granted. As he stood before me, a mute exchange of thought took place between us. The doctor had been delegated by the earth to deliver a message to me, to tell me that there was a protest against my going away. I had no right to leave the earth and must return. The moment I heard that, the vision ceased. I was profoundly disappointed, for now it all seemed to have been for nothing. The painful process of defoliation had been in vain, and I was not to be allowed to enter the temple to join the people in whose company I belonged. In reality, a good three weeks were still to pass before I could truly make up my mind to live again. I could not eat because all food repelled me. The view of the city and the mountains from my sickbed seemed to me like a painted curtain with black holes in it, or a tattered sheet of newspaper 
full of photographs that meant nothing. Disappointed, I thought. Now I must return to the box system again. For it seemed to me as if behind the horizon of the cosmos, a three-dimensional world had been artificially built up, in which each person sat by himself in a little box. And now I should have to convince myself all over again that this was important. Life in the whole world struck me as a prison, and it bothered me beyond measure that I should again be finding all that quite in order. I had been so glad to shed it all, and now it had come about that I, along with everyone else, would again be hung up in a box by a thread. While I floated in space, I had been weightless, and there had been nothing tugging at me, and now all that was to be a thing of the past. I felt violent resistance to my doctor, because he had brought me back to life. At the same time, I was worried about him. His life is in danger, for heaven's sake. He has appeared to me in his primal form. When anybody attains this form, it means he is going to die, for already he belongs to the greater company. Suddenly the terrifying thought came to me that Dr. H would have to die in my stead. I tried my best to talk to him about it, but he did not understand me. Then I became angry with him. Why does he always pretend that he doesn't know he is a bacillus of Kos, and that he has already assumed his primal form? He wants to make me believe that he doesn't know. That irritated me. My wife reproved me for being so unfriendly to him. She was right, but at the same time I was angry with him for stubbornly refusing to speak of all that had passed between us in my vision. Damn it all, he ought to watch his step. He has no right to be so reckless. I want to tell him to take care of himself. I was firmly convinced that his life was in jeopardy. In actual fact, I was his last patient. On April 4th, 1944, 4444, I still remember the exact date I was allowed to sit up on the edge of my bed for the first time since the beginning of my illness, and on the same day Dr. H took to his bed and did not leave it again. I heard that he was having intermittent attacks of fever. Soon afterward he died of septicemia. He was a good doctor. There was something of genius about him. Otherwise, he would not have appeared to me as the Prince of Kos. During those weeks, I lived in a strange rhythm. By day, I was usually depressed. I felt weak and wretched, and scarcely dared to stir. Gloomily, I thought, now I must go back to this drab world. Toward evening, I would fall asleep, and my sleep would last until about midnight. Then I would come to myself and lie awake for about an hour, but in an utterly transformed state. It was as if I were in an ecstasy. I felt as though I were floating in space, as though I were safe in the womb of the universe, in a tremendous void, but filled with the highest possible feeling of happiness. This is eternal bliss, I thought. This cannot be described. It is far too wonderful. Everything around me seemed enchanted. At this hour of the night, the nurse brought me some food she had warmed, for only then I was able to take any, and I ate with appetite. For a time it seemed to me that she was an old Jewish woman, much older than she actually was, and that she was preparing ritual kosher dishes for me. When I looked at her, she seemed to have a blue halo around her head. I myself was, so it seemed, in the Pardes Ramonum, the garden of pomegranates, and the wedding of Tiferet with the Malchut was taking place. Or else I was Rabbi Simeon bar Yokai, whose wedding in the afterlife was being celebrated. It was the mystic marriage as it appears in the Kabbalistic tradition. I cannot tell you how wonderful it was. 
I could only think continually. Now this is the garden of pomegranates. Now this is the marriage of Malchuth with Tifereth. Footnote. Pardes Ramonum is the title of an old Kabbalistic tract by Moses Cordovero, 16th century. In Kabbalistic doctrine, Malchuth and Tifereth are two of the ten spheres of divine manifestation in which God emerges from his hidden state. They represent the female and male principles within the Godhead. End of footnote. I do not know exactly what part I played in it. At bottom, it was I myself. I was the marriage, and my beatitude was that of blissful wedding. Gradually, the garden of pomegranates faded away and changed. There followed the marriage of the Lamb, in a Jerusalem festively bedecked. I cannot describe what it was like in detail. These were ineffable states of joy. Angels were present and light. I myself was the marriage of the Lamb. That too vanished, and there came a new image, the last vision. I walked up a wide valley to the end, where a gentle chain of hills began. The valley ended in a classical amphitheater. It was magnificently situated in the green landscape, and there, in this theater, the Heros Gamos was being celebrated. Men and women dancers came on stage, and upon a flower-decked couch, all Father Zeus and Hera consummated the mystic marriage, as it is described in the Iliad. All these experiences were glorious. Night after night, I floated in a state of purest bliss, thronged round with images of all creation, from Faust, part two. Gradually the motifs mingled and paled. Usually the visions lasted for about an hour, then I would fall asleep again. By the time morning drew near, I would feel, now a gray morning is coming again, now comes the gray world with its boxes. What idiocy, what hideous nonsense. Those inner states were so fantastically beautiful that by comparison this world appeared downright ridiculous. As I approached closer to life again, they grew fainter, and scarcely three weeks after the first vision, they ceased altogether. It is impossible to convey the beauty and intensity of emotion during those visions. They were the most tremendous things I have ever experienced. And what a contrast the day was. I was tormented and on edge. Everything irritated me. Everything was too material, too crude and clumsy, terribly limited both spatially and spiritually. It was all an imprisonment for reasons impossible to divine, and yet it had a kind of hypnotic power, a cogency, as if it were reality itself. For all that I had clearly perceived its emptiness. Although my belief in the world returned to me, I have never since entirely freed myself of the impression that this life is a segment of existence which is enacted in a three-dimensional box-like universe especially set up for it. There is something else I quite distinctly remember. At the beginning, when I was having the vision of the garden of pomegranates, I asked the nurse to forgive me if she were harmed. There was such sanctity in the room, I said, that it might be harmful to her. Of course, she did not understand me. For me, the presence of sanctity had a magical atmosphere. I feared it might be unendurable to others. I understood then why one speaks of the odor of sanctity, of the sweet smell of the Holy Ghost. This was it. There was a pneuma of inexpressible sanctity in the room, whose manifestation was the Mysterium Conjunctionis. I would never have imagined that any such experience was possible. It was not a product of imagination. The visions and experiences were utterly real. There was nothing subjective about them. 
they all had a quality of absolute objectivity. We shy away from the word eternal, but I can describe the experience only as the ecstasy of a non-temporal state in which present, past, and future are one. Everything that happens in time has been brought together into a concrete whole. Nothing was distributed over time. Nothing could be measured by temporal concepts. The experience might be best defined as a state of feeling, but one which cannot be produced by imagination. How can I imagine that I exist simultaneously the day before yesterday, today, and the day after tomorrow? There would be things which would not yet have begun, other things which would be indubitably present, and others again which would already be finished, and yet all this would be one. The only thing that feeling could grasp would be a sum, an iridescent whole, containing all at once expectation of beginning, surprise at what is now happening, and satisfaction or disappointment with the result of what has happened. One is interwoven into an indescribable whole, and yet observes it with complete objectivity. I experienced this objectivity once again later on. That was after the death of my wife. I saw her in a dream which was like a vision. She stood at some distance from me, looking at me squarely. She was in her prime, perhaps about thirty, and wearing the dress which had been made for her many years before by my cousin the medium. It was perhaps the most beautiful thing she had ever worn. Her expression was neither joyful nor sad, but rather objectively wise and understanding, without the slightest emotional reaction, as though she were beyond the mist of effects. I knew that it was not she, but a portrait she had made or commissioned for me. It contained the beginning of our relationship, the events of fifty-three years of marriage, and the end of her life also. Face to face with such wholeness, one remains speechless, for it can scarcely be comprehended. The objectivity which I experienced in this dream and the visions is part of the completed individuation. It signifies detachment from valuations and from what we call emotional ties. In general, emotional ties are very important to human beings, but they still contain projections and it is essential to withdraw these projections in order to attain to oneself and to objectivity. Emotional relationships are relationships of desire, tainted by coercion and constraint. Something is expected from the other person, and that makes him and ourselves unfree. Objective cognition lies hidden behind the attraction of the emotional relationship seems to be the central secret. Only through objective cognition is the real conjunctio possible. After the illness, a fruitful period of work began for me. A good many of my principal works were written only then. The insight I had had, or the vision of the end of all things, gave me the courage to undertake new formulations. I no longer attempted to put across my own opinion but surrendered myself to the current of my thoughts. Thus, one problem after the other revealed itself to me and took shape. Something else, too, came to me from my illness. I might formulate it as an affirmation of things as they are, an unconditional yes to that which is, without subjective protests, acceptance of the conditions of existence as I see them and understand them, acceptance of my own nature, as I happen to be. At the beginning of the illness, I had the feeling that there was something wrong with my attitude, and that I was to some extent responsible for the mishap. But when one follows the path of individuation, when one lives one's own life, one must take mistakes into the bargain. Life would not be complete without them. There is no guarantee 
not for a single moment, that we will not fall into error or stumble into deadly peril. We may think there is a sure road, but that would be the road of death. Then nothing happens any longer at any rate, not the right things. Anyone who takes the sure road is as good as dead. It was only after the illness that I understood how important it is to affirm one's own destiny. In this way, we forge an ego that does not break down when incomprehensible things happen, an ego that endures, and that endures the truth, and that is capable of coping with the world and with fate. Then, to experience defeat is also to experience victory. Nothing is disturbed, neither inwardly nor outwardly. For one's own continuity has withstood the current of life and of time. But that can come to pass only when one does not meddle inquisitively with the workings of fate. I have also realized that one must accept the thoughts that go on within oneself of their own accord as part of one's reality. The categories of true and false are, of course, always present, but because they are not binding, they take second place. The presence of thoughts is more important than our subjective judgment of them, but neither must these judgments be suppressed, for they are also existent thoughts which are part of our wholeness. Okay, so I'm going to do my best to try to unpack all that. No promises on whether I'll be able to do so effectively, um, which will include trying to explain some Jungian ideas uh, to the best of my ability. Um, if I mess anything up and there are any psychologists out there listening, please correct me. <laughs> um, so... It was, I mean, it's a fascinating story, which, you know, it has several features that are common to many near-death experiences, but like like the phenomena of near-death experiences, it is has similarities, um, such as floating and uh, anticipation, anticipation to meet um, uh, other spirits and being in a void and... Uh, communicating telepathically and feeling like coming back is being shoved into a tiny box. It's, you know, an unpleasant kind of experience. Um, it's got all those features, but um, of course, as a near-death experience, they're not all uniform. There's quite a bit of variation um, between them, which I think only adds to their interest. Um, but so it's, it, you know, near-death experiences always provide more questions than answers, um, which might annoy some people, but, I mean, that's, you, you get what you get. So, um, so I'm going to try and, uh, try to just kind of sort this out, um, starting out with, um, starting out with, I, I suppose, trying to explain how Jung thought of, of religion and spirituality in the afterlife and, and, and what his kind of approach to it was. And in psychology, he, he almost thought of our, our psyches as, as starting off in a sea of unconsciousness like animals or children, like completely unaware. And, and when he says unconscious, he means really unconscious, like not knowing um, what they're doing, just uh, being driven completely by instinct. As children cry and, you know, still have particular patterns that they express and their forms of behavior that are common to all children. Um, but they're not aware, there's, you know, they're not aware of what they're doing. You know, they gradually claw themselves up into consciousness and forming memories and, and being able to be aware of what's going on. 
Um, they're just, they kind of, they're little tiny islands of consciousness that they gradually group together and, and over childhood and growing up, gradually kind of blossom that consciousness out to incorporate more into where they be can become fully kind of, um, have full agency over, over their person. Um, and so he, from his practice with patients and with, um, various, uh, people who had psychological issues, he started to see patterns emerging in their dreams and visions. Um, he would see recurring characters or re recurring forms that, that would show up again and again. And what he realized was that these forms were also present in the mythology of, of, uh, people around the world that you could get, um, regardless of, of kind of what culture is coming for, from a similar form, though the, the, particular, you know, whatever formation of the image was, um, whether it's Batman or Gilgamesh, um, the category of, of the uh, form that showed up in all around the world in mythology was the same, and that category would be the hero or, or, or something else, you know, um, the, the wise old man, and he called these archetypes. Um, these different forms which appear in dreams and visions and in our our cultures and our mythologies and he di he didn't see them as as made up per se he saw them as like objective uh, the, he saw them as as images of certain instincts within us animals have instincts that guide their behavior and it you know humans do as well, at least he, he claimed in that. Um, and so we would have representations for these instincts, whether they were, you know, they, and we would project them out into the world and not consciously. We would see the sun rising, you know, when we were more primitive, more unconscious, more, um, not as aware, we would see the sun rising and and unconsciously project the idea of that's the rising hero, that's the savior, that's the redeemer coming out from the underworld uh, of death and night and darkness. Um, he, he thought of this, he, I guess, hypothesized that this was an automatic, um, automatic process that happened unconsciously, um, and he backed up these assertions by spending time with um, um, native tribes um, in India and Africa and um, American Indians um, and different indigenous peoples. So he thought that the psyche, the human soul or, or, or the unconscious had objective um, objective characters and forms that weren't just made up by, you know, early people. So he saw religion as emerging out of these um, objective symbols, these representations and images that tried to capture a meaning that um, they could not fully grasp, like uh, the image of the cross or a mandala was something that there's more information in it than we could ever truly um, exhaust. And that's what, that's what he saw as a, or that's what he said was a, a symbol, was something that, that represented more than we could possibly, uh, you know, talk about. It, it's so meaningful and numinous that um, it emerges from the unconscious um, on its own, on its own accord. And he, he saw this as the source of, 
of religions and and um, spiritual practices around the world. And so he, through his studies and practice, conceived of of I suppose a an objective inner psyche um, and the idea of God within the psyche regularly emerged based on his, his study as a form of totality, of wholeness, of completeness. Um, and that by becoming more aware and be and by getting into relationship with um, one's own unconscious by paying attention to one's dreams and paying attention to the things that one does, well, the things that you do that you don't realize you're doing, by gradually gaining more consciousness of who you are to know yourself, essentially, is to is to become the greatest self that you can. It's like to to rise to the to the heights of spiritual development. He called it individuation. It's it's also kind of the idea of enlightenment or of attaining Christhood in a way. It's like becoming more than you know that you're capable of because you're deeper than you could possibly imagine. The depths of your psyche and your soul, he he kind of suggested that they reach back all the way to a divine totality, a divine God. Not, you know, it doesn't really matter what you call it, whether you call it the infinite, the whole, the wholeness. So... So with that in mind, it kind of helps to understand his near-death experience and his visions, um, or his dreams, that it's in a way hard to distinguish between the two, and he talks about both as both being profound and, and you know, quite uh, exhilarating and ecstatic. And he, he talks about almost being on the cusp of getting all the answers of, of who he was and, and how he fit into the totality, how he fit into the one, um, and how time was all one. There was no separation between past and the present and the, the future. And then he's saved by his doctor, and he, he's afraid for his doctor's well-being because in his vision, the doctor appeared in a, I suppose, a primal form, which you could think of as a, I guess, a more, uh, an archetypal form where he's this um, ancient kind of form of a doctor. Um, and Jung supposes that because he, show, he's, he appeared in this form that he is close to death. Um, and sure enough, the doctor shortly dies uh, thereafter. Um, and then in his recuperations over the next couple weeks, he has these visions and these fantasies of, of a divine wedding. And Jung was in his uh, later life, which is this, this is kind of towards... Um, his later period, he he was very interested in in the idea of alchemy and uh, what the alchemists were doing back in Middle Ages and and uh, and how they were. You know, we look at alchemy today and we go, "Oh, what a load of bullshit!" You know, they were just trying to do. They were just bad at doing science and getting all caught up in religious. They were just trying to make turn lead into gold and and that's it. But Jung saw it differently. Jung saw it as them projecting their unconscious processes out onto the physical 
world of matter that by trying to turn a dark, uh, useless substance into gold that they were trying to reach inside themselves to, to find something, the, the thing of greatest value, the philosopher's stone, the um, Christ within themselves, that they were trying, they were almost practicing psychology but not being aware of what they were doing. They were projecting it out onto the outer world. And in these alchemical texts, there's always talk of, of combining the opposites, bringing together um, the yin and the yang, so to speak, um, the male and the female. And so these visions of, uh, that he's having of, of divine weddings, of, of marrying the two opposite parts of the totality together, um, he experiences as ecstasy. And I think he saw as that is what we, in a way, have to do with our lives, is bring together all the uh, fighting contradictions within ourselves um, and bring them together to the place of the most that has the most, and that will be the place that has the most meaning for us, is if we are able to claw together these these opposites and be able to hold contradictions um, with both our hands and, and be okay with that and, and become, um, because to only take one side or the other in a way was, was like to uh, become unbalanced and to, to lack totality, to lack wholeness. Um, and so towards the end of his story, Jung talking about the objective nature of relationships and, and of visions, I think that what he's talking about is the, the way he, he has understood the, the psyche, that essentially we are, it's like we're sandwiched between an outer objective world and an inner objective world. And to realize that is to become more conscious and to become enlightened or to become an individual, to know oneself. Um, and that is what he called the path of individuation. Um, and, okay, so that's about, <laughs> that's about the best I can do um, with Jung, but now I'd just like to kind of finish up by, by talking about why I find that so interesting, which I'm not sure I completely understand myself, but here it goes. So, um, with near-death experiences or with, you know, seeing a ghost or having a hallucination or having a drug trip or any any phenomena that would be considered out of the ordinary or paranormal or or you know something that is not real you know there's a lot of people in our western culture these days that would consider those things to be not to be real because they define reality as only that which they can touch and and uh, sense and smell and uh, see. But Jung would have argued, and in fact he, he does in, in several of his writings, that they might not be uh, materially real, but they are psychic, psychically real, are, are real, they're psychological facts. They're real things to the individual because they experience them. He has much said so in, in his story that this was real and objective. And I, I think that's kind of what he's getting at is that because you experience it, that, I mean, it happened. Now, you can argue whether it was just a hallucination or whether it was his brain dying or whatever, but that doesn't change the fact that he went through it. It's like, <laughs> it's like uh, my girlfriend uh, 
wakes up in the middle of the night and she's had a bad dream where I did something bad and she's mad at me. You know, she's on the verge of tears and she wakes up and she's mad at me and she says, I did, I did something bad in her dream or something. And it's, she did experience that and she does have those feelings. Now, it's real in that sense. It's not real that I actually did anything bad that I didn't, I hurt her in any way. We were, I mean, I was asleep. Uh, and so was she, but she still experienced that feeling. And those feelings that we experience, that which we've experienced, changes who we are. It changes um, how we see the world, and it it grows us as people. It, it grows our list of experiences. It grows our, our history and, and knowledge of things. Um, and so I think Jung was in a way kind of taking a line that was similar to uh, um, the philosopher and psychologist William James at the the turn of the century, the the early part of the uh, 20th century with his book the, or his lectures, The Varieties of Religious Experience. He, he was a pragmatist in that he he saw truth that which is real as being what works you know so and i'm i'm not really equipped to be able to talk about this well but fundamentally the idea being that if a belief in near death experiences or a belief in god helps someone live a better life then we can consider that true for all intents and purposes, um, or true enough, shall we say. Maybe that's a better way to put it. That by these experiences, which we can't touch or taste, well, let's say that everyone you know, objectively can't touch or taste. Like if I have a dream, then I'm kind of the only one who gets to take part in that. Um, just because we have these experiences that are considered subjective, which they are, um, it doesn't really preclude the fact that they're not real or preclude the fact that they are real in a way. Um, that since we are, no one is a brain in a bottle, Right, we're we're not. We can't be removed from this situation we're in. We're in these bodies, and we're subjects essentially. Um, that that because we have these experiences, that they shape us and mold us, and 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 they are real insofar as they um, help us to live healthy lives or or meaningful lives good lives that we would enjoy, I suppose. Um, and, you know, this kind of... You see this emerging out of the near-death ex the near death experience phenomena as such. It's like people have a near-death experience and then they come back and they're different people. They hang out with... They choose different friends. They choose a different line of work. They uh, divorce their partner because it was a bad relationship and they, um, you know, it was not something that was spiritually good for them. It's like the, people come back and they, they're not the same. They experience things that, that change them. And, and so I'm not, I would never say that, that near-death experiences are um, something provable or, or that they, you know, prove something about about God or a religion or something you know in fact it quite uh, it quite bothers me when people use their near-death experience to be some proof of heaven or you know writing a book or a movie okay I had this near the near-death experience and Jesus is real because I saw him and hell's real because of you know it, it I don't think that that's what these experiences are for. They're not, shouldn't be used as some kind of um, means to try and convert people. 
you know, based on whatever form your experience took. I, I think they go deeper than that. I think they they contain these deep wisdoms and, and, and insights on, to, on how we should live. Like I said a little while ago, that's one of the things that I find most compelling about near-death experiences is if they were just made-up fantasies of a dying brain, then why is there a moral component to them? Why do they uh, tell us how we should live or give us a sense of of what should be in the world, how we should act with other people. Why do people come back changed for the better? Why is there a emphasis on, on everyone having a mission to, to accomplish in life, having a purpose? You know, they people aren't allowed to stay in that you know, heaven or afterlife, whatever you want to call it, because, you know, they'll say oh no, you have to go back, you have something you need to do, or, you know, something along those lines. So, I, I think, in summary, I think it's a good way of approaching this subject, which is so complicated and so profound, is to say, okay, you know, whatever science can tell us is great, you know, measure uh, whatever neurotransmitters are going on, measure uh, the states of people's consciousness when they're under certain experiences, etc. That's all great. Um, where I start to take issue is when people try to explain it away using science, saying, oh, it's just a dying brain. It's just hallucinations in your head. Because I don't think we can really say that and, and be, be, you know, intellectually honest. Because we don't know if it's just that. Now we can say that that's a material basis for some phenomenon that we suspect. But, you know, I think there's... We have to take people's experiences, you know, at face value. You know, some people... Are, might be more reliable than others, like someone who's have it, who's talking about their near-death experience to sell a book that might not be as reliable as someone who just wants to share it privately with whomever or, you know, post it on one of these websites. You know, we can take those things into account, but, but people's experiences are real to them. You know, and just because we can't measure that doesn't mean that it's not something to be taken seriously. And of course, the you know, we can't go too far in the other direction on the spiritual side and say, well, uh, heaven exists and God exists and this exists and that exists and you know, it's all real, it's all proven because I experienced it. It's we have to take somewhere in the middle where we can go, you know have one foot in this in the spirit and one foot in matter and i think that's a good place to to look at this from um and i think carl jung has with all that the things he's written which i'm still working on uh reading does a good job of finding that balance of bringing bringing the opposites together psyche and matter, uh, spirit, and atoms. Um, thank you so much for listening, all of you that do. It really means a lot to me. Um, if I'm working on getting some social media set up for the podcast, like Facebook page, etc., but it's a work in progress, so I will let you know when, when I get all that up and running. Uh, if you would like to contact me, uh, shoot me an email at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. Uh, I love getting to hear from you all. Um, and that's about it. I'll uh, now leave you, as, as always, with a quote about death. So for this quote on death, I thought I would leave you with something I thought was apropos for this podcast. 
It is the quote that uh, Carl Jung um, inscribed in the, over the door of his house, uh, which is a Latin phrase, and it is, vocatus atqua non vocatus Deus aderit, which means, called or not called, God is present.